0: The two terms linguistic philosophy and linguistic analysis are both used to mean the same thing, and that is a technique of doing philosophy which developed mainly in the Anglo-Saxon world and which came to fruition in the 1940s and 50s, though I think it's fair to say that the way almost everybody since then has done philosophy has been influenced by it. The two great centres of activity in it were Oxford and Cambridge. At Oxford, the most influential figure was J.L. Austin and, to a lesser degree, Gilbert Ryle. At Cambridge, it was, incomparably, Wittgenstein. These and the other individuals involved all differed among themselves, naturally, but they had certain basic tenets in common. Perhaps the chief of them can be put this way. Ever since Socrates, philosophers have tended to ask questions like, what is truth, or what is beauty, or what is justice? on the assumption that each of these words stands for something, perhaps an invisible or abstract something, but anyway, something that has its own existence, independently of how the words are used. It was as if the philosophers were trying to pierce through the question, through the language, to some non-linguistic reality that stood behind the words. Now, the linguistic philosophers came along and said that this was a profound error, and an error, what's more, that leads us into other serious mistakes in our thinking. There are, they said, no entities for which these words stand. Language is a human creation. We invented the words, and we determine their use. Understanding what a word means is nothing more nor less than knowing how to use it. So, taking a notion like truth, when you fully understand how to use the word truth correctly, and its associate words like true truthfulness, and so on, then you fully understand its meaning. This meaning simply is the sum total of the word's possible uses, not some incorporeal entity that exists in some abstract realm. From this, linguistic philosophers went on to say that the only satisfactory way to analyze the categories of human thought or the concepts in which we try and come to terms with the world or communicate with each other is by investigating how they're used and doing linguistic philosophy consists in carrying out such investigations. In fact, the most famous book in linguistic philosophy is called Philosophical Investigations by Wittgenstein. Normally, such an investigation would be into one concept at a time, as it might be, say, the concept of mind, which is the title of what is probably the second most famous work in linguistic philosophy, a book by Gilbert Ryle. For some years after the publication of these two books, Ryle's in 1949, Wittgenstein's in 1953, linguistic analysis exercised an enormous spell on philosophy. And in those years it came at the very least to colour the way the subject was practised by almost everyone in the English-speaking world. To discuss it now on this programme, we have someone who has spent many years each at both Oxford and Cambridge, Bernard Williams, now one of the two professors of philosophy at Cambridge, was an undergraduate at Oxford in the heyday of linguistic philosophy there. Well, Bernard Williams, the philosophy that linguistic philosophy represented a breakaway from was primarily logical positivism, wasn't it? Logical positivism was the prevailing orthodoxy of one generation, linguistic philosophy of the next. And I think uh, a way in which we can continue the characterization of linguistic philosophy that I started in this introduction is by talking about the contrast between it and the logical positivism that it broke away from.
1: I think we were very conscious of the difference from logical positivism and perhaps more conscious than people will be looking at all later on but the real difference I think was this that positivism uh, tremendously thought of the canon of human meaningful discourse and knowledge as being science, really. It admitted that there were other forms of discourse as well, but it measured the meaningfulness of other discourse by really the standards of science, and for positivism, philosophy almost was the philosophy of science, whereas uh, linguistic analysis or linguistic philosophy was tremendously and self-consciously aware of the variety of different forms of Human discourse. There were many different ways of talking, many different sorts of meaning besides scientific meaning. And the business was to try and discover how these various other sorts, as well as the scientific sorts, worked, not to measure everything by the canons of science and pronounce the other sorts meaningless.
0: Uh, The logical positivists did in fact quite explicitly say, didn't they, that any statement which was not empirically
1: verifiable was meaningless. Yes, except for the, as it were, statements of mathematics, which were just true in virtue of the meanings of the words, as it were, but certainly all the statements of ethics or aesthetics or religion and indeed many everyday psychological statements, I suspect, by the positivist canon were meaningless.
0: So whereas, for example, the logical positivist would have said that religious talk was meaningless, talk about God and so on was meaningless, because there was simply no way in which any of it was verifiable, the linguistic analyst might have been inclined to say, well, before we pronounce this meaningless, let's have a very close look at what precisely the concepts are that are being used here, how they're being used, how they function within this universe of discourse, and so on.
1: Oh yes, they, I mean, they not only might have They were very disposed to say that and were always publishing books called Faith and Logic. That was the little title they tended to have in which they thought... Of course, it has got a rather um, curious, ironical, two-sided aspect, that business. Because although linguistic philosophy, for instance, was, as you say, kinder towards religious language than positivism had been, which at least did it the honour in a sense of showing it off the premises as empirically meaningless, Um, the linguistic analysts were a little disposed to say, well, here we have this form of discourse which is one form of human life like any other. And, of course, it implicitly already gave an extremely, as it were, humanistic interpretation of religion. It tended to, it tended just to regard religion and religious belief as a form of human life, as an expression, as an expression of human needs. And while there are many, including some now among the clergy who would agree with that, it wasn't, perhaps, everybody's traditional idea of religious belief.
0: We've distinguished uh, linguistic philosophy from logical positivism. There's another distinction which I think it's very important that we should make at the outset of this programme, and that's the distinction between linguistic philosophy and the philosophy of language. Those two phrases are so similar that I think someone uh, unfamiliar with philosophy could easily be forgiven for mixing the two up or for supposing that they were named for the same thing. But they're not, are they? And I wonder if you would make clear what the distinction is.
1: Well, I think that there is an important distinction there in the the following sense. That the the philosophy of language, as I understand it, is a branch of philosophy. It's an area of philosophy. It's uh, that part of philosophy which particularly concerns itself with questions raised by language itself. It's now a very flourishing, and indeed in many ways a very technical subject, and of course it borders very closely on theoretical linguistics. Whereas I think we understood linguistic philosophy or linguistic analysis to be not a branch of philosophy but a method of philosophy, which addressed itself to philosophical questions raised all over the place. I mean, the questions of metaphysics, of ethics, questions about the meaning of, of ethical statements, what one ought to do and so on, and all other branches of philosophy, but offered but a certain method for addressing those same questions. One which particularly laid emphasis on being self-conscious about the language in which those questions were raised.
0: And, of course, it did offer a certain promise, didn't it? I mean, precisely because the idea was that there was no content in any part of our conceptual scheme that was not put there by us. And, therefore, if you carried out a thorough analysis of the way a particular concept functioned, there was no remainder. Nothing was left over. The projection of this into Philosophical investigation was expected to result in the problems being finally solved, wasn't it? Well, the uh,
1: phrase yes, the phrase that so often was used, and I think still can be heard somewhere, is not solved but dissolved. The idea the idea was that many of the traditional problems of philosophy had been based on a misunderstanding, a very simple idea of how our language worked, and once that you became self-conscious about the way our language worked, became, came to understand the kind of meaning that we'd given our expressions, you'd see that as it were, you couldn't just put some words together and hope that these problems would find their own destination, if I can put it that way. Thoughts couldn't just weave through the words and get to reality. Our questions meant just what we made them mean as it were. It was only our practice which determined what these questions meant. Now, that meant that a lot of questions of philosophy weren't one question at all. The idea was they were often a collection of different worries, different puzzles, which had been put together under some simplifying formula. And when you saw through that, and remember it's also called linguistic analysis, had analytically taken the problems apart, then you'd find that many of the traditional questions of philosophy had not just been solved, but had disappeared. You no longer needed to ask them anymore. And the promise that this offered, of this being so, was very great and extremely exciting. And, I mean, there really were people around who were saying the whole of philosophy would be over in 50 years. It would all be finished.
0: We will exhaustively analyze the use of all the basic concepts, and when we've done that, there will be nothing left
1: to do. Or at least you'll have got rid of the ones that give rise to the problems, the to characteristic of philosophical pro- problems, yes, surely. Mm.
0: But, of course, one, that's slightly at odds with another promise, as it were, yeah. held out by linguistic philosophy, and it's yeah. this. The logical positivists uh, kept philosophy tied to science's apron strings in mm-hmm. the way that you described a moment ago. But as you explained, the linguistic philosophers uh, were prepared to look at anything and everything. Yeah. And one consequence of that was that, ling- that philosophical techniques were thought of as being Techniques that could be applied to literally every field of human discourse that there is. Mm. There's no reason why you shouldn't on on these assumptions have a philosophy of medicine, a philosophy of uh, economics, a philosophy of population Mm. theory, a philosophy of sport, a philosophy of anything. Because in any field, let's take medicine for example, you could take uh, some of the characteristic and central concepts. In medicine it would be, shall we say, health, Mm -hmm. disease, cure, all of which are in fact deeply problematic concepts sure. once you start seriously considering them, and you could, as it were, give them the treatment. You could turn the, the blowtorch, as it were. You could You could use these philosophical techniques of analysis on them, thereby clarifying all discourse in that particular field. Now, the very fact that this was thought to be applicable to all fields of human discourse seems to present you with an endless task if you're thinking in terms of exhaustive analysis.
1: Yes, Uh, that's why I think one wouldn't want to say that anyone ever thought that all the concepts could be clarified. What they thought was that the problems uh, could be, I mean, the major problems could be dissolved. And that's because there was a view about where the major problems came from. Of course, there are philosophical, conceptual questions to be answered about medicine, and I mean, there are. I mean, there are people now are equally interested in, perhaps in, even more interested in these same issues you just referred to about health and so on. Um, interesting application, of course, that is in the case of mental health, where the The very concept of mental illness has been found problematical by some people, and philosophical inquiry has gone on on that basis. But no, to go back to the preoccupations of of linguistic philosophy, the, the central problems, I think, were found to arise in two sorts of ways. First of all, with enormously general concepts. Not concepts as specific as hells, but ones that arise all over the place, like the notion of something being the same as something else, or the notion of something causing something else, or just the notion of something changing, the concepts of time and space and so on. These are notions which we use in all fields of discourse, and their very general character gave rise to, as indeed it traditionally has given rise to, a central corpus of philosophical problems to try and understand these notions. A second important area was perceived, and I think rightly perceived, to arise on the borderline between two different kinds of discourse. For instance, on the borderline between talking about the physical things and talking about psychological things. And the book by Ryle, to which you referred, The Concept of Mind, was specifically an attempt to apply the sorts of techniques that linguistic analysis used to questions like How do we know that other people have experiences? What is it for a living, solid thing to have thoughts and questions of that kind? Now, indeed, these were not new problems, Put in that form, they are very old problems of philosophy. The whole point was that if you took that area where the problems were very pressing and used these techniques, the problems wouldn't look the same as they did before. They would dissolve into a series of separate conceptual issues that we might be able to handle.
0: Apart from this promise of solution to all problems, which is obviously extremely attractive, what was the special appeal of linguistic philosophy to so many very clever people? Because it did seem to have a sort of spellbinding appeal for many people. People caught it almost like a disease.
1: It's, I think there were deep, less deep and more deep reasons for that. I think that one of the deeper ones was that it presented, in almost all its forms, it presented some contrast or other between the depth and serious of the motivation and the everydayness of the style. The examples were every, very everyday. There was a rather deliberate attempt to avoid portentous philosophical technical terminology of any kind. It didn't sound high-flown. There was a, a possibly rather downbeat style. And because it, one felt at the same time that actually, though it didn't necessarily look like it, one was doing something rather serious, that provided a particular kind of what might be called Socratic pleasure. It had, it had, as it were, the everyday, rather dry, ironical aspect of the material, serving what, as it were, we all knew, was a deeper purpose. Now that came out rather differently in the Wittgenstein style to which you referred, and in the Oxfordian style, which was rather more deliberately dry. Uh, there's a remark of Austin's which was rather famous at the time when. He would give one of these seminars and he would be concerned with what, I mean, portentous would have called problems about free will and responsibility and so on. But actually, he would never say that. What he was doing, he was discussing the difference between doing something inadvertently or by mistake or accidentally and so forth. And at some point, some visitor would say, um, Professor Austin, what great problems of philosophy are illuminated by these inquiries? To which Austin would say, Roughly all of them. Yes. And this somehow struck the note, I mean, yes. as you can see. Yes.
0: I think a lot of people were misled by the triviality of the examples. I mean, mind you, this has gone on throughout the history of yes. philosophy. I mean, in an earlier generation there was a, uh, a well-known uh, moral philosopher who wrote uh, chapter after chapter about the problems raised by whether or not you ought to give a book back once you had borrowed it, and what kind of an ought that was, and how... Well, only one chapter, was. to be fair. Uh, one I'm chapter, saying, yes. yes. But, yes. Uh, I mean, that was the subject of many jokes, but yeah. of course the point there was that this was not a man agonizing over whether or not to return a book, but considering the whole nature of moral obligation uh, and so on. Now, in the case of linguistic philosophy, I think this was also true, wasn't it? Although linguistic philosophers, as you say, deliberately adopted a rather deflationary style and deliberately employed uh, trivial-seeming examples... There was a a serious reason for employing trivial examples, namely they wanted nothing in what they were saying to hinge on the particular example.
1: That's right, and they they realised that, I think part of the idea was that if you took some immediately um, obvious, grand or dramatic or apparently profound example, Mm. um, then you were faced with two alternatives. Either it really was profound, in which case it was almost certainly too complex and hard to start with. We ought to have got there by taking some more everyday concern first, or else it wasn't and it was just bogus. I mean, it, was part of, it was part of, as it were, the traditional rhetoric of philosophy. And, of course, part of the charm of d- doing the subject this way was that it deflated, it exposed the traditional, much of the traditional rhetoric of philosophy. I think, myself, that there was a deep concern behind the choice of the simple examples, the downbeat style, though, to be fair, it was probably rather more urgently felt in the Vicodinian styles than it was in some of the Oxfordian styles where I think some of it really was just done because it was fun and so on. Now, I think one has to say this isn't our major point, I think, at the moment, but I, I myself want to say that I think this was a much sounder enterprise when people were talking about perception or the theory of knowledge. I think you really should be able to talk about that in a very everyday concept uh, context or, again, when one was talking about certain problems and the theory of meaning than it was when one was talking about ethics or politics. And it's not uncharacteristic that, in fact, polit- political philosophy never, never prospered under this uh, regime at all. It's just not a subject that ever took to it and I think that's connected with this fact I mean it's because the categories of the dramatic and the serious are themselves political and moral categories yeah and yes, that's not true about yes. seeing and knowing and yes. counting these other concepts. I
0: suppose another uh, aspect of the appeal of linguistic philosophy to clever people was the inculcation of a very salutary self-consciousness about the use of language. I mean, uh, almost the inculcation of a new kind of responsibility. Mm. Uh, The insistence that it really does matter that you express yourself scrupulously clearly.
1: Yes, I think this is is extremely important, uh, what the nature of this self-awareness was. And... It's interesting that though some people have criticised linguistic philosophy uh, for being pedantic or just lexicographical or trivial in these respects or worrying too much about small points of verbal formulation, in fact, it's the same demand that has been made often by poets, for instance, by or in much of his work, and by very self-conscious writers in particular, oddly enough, by Yeats, who felt that somehow the integrity of meaning, the fact that you should say no more and less than what you mean, or that you should be self-aware about what that is, is itself a bulwark against, as it were, dissolution, terror, splurge.
0: Karl Kraus, yeah. George Orwell, there's almost a literature yes. articulating that point of view. The of feeling
1: Orwell. of the resistance of the pollution of the speech and yes. that the resistance that they wouldn't have been put in the downbeat tone that was then prevailing. Certainly at the, at the Oxford end of the proceedings, it would rather more, in the Wittgensteinian way, we have to remember that Wittgenstein came from Vienna, where this yes. had for a long yeah. time been a very deeply felt concern. At the Oxford end, it wouldn't have been put like that, because that would itself sounded rather high-flow, but in fact, that was undoubtedly part of the motivation, and my, in my view, an important one.
0: I I think this is a point worth making, that that this did make it at Oxford, for example, where you and I both studied the subject, I think it did make it an enormously valuable form of intellectual training uh, for young people, for students. This insistence on clarity, on responsibility, on paying serious attention to very small differences and distinctions in meaning, it's a very good form of mental training, quite apart from uh, its philosophical
1: importance. Yes, it it certainly had very positive aspects. I think... It has to be said that it had some negative aspects in that respect as well. I yes. Yeah, I, th- I want yeah. to come to those later, yeah. Yeah. and yeah, not sure. quite yet. No.
0: Um, we've talked about the commitment to clarity, uh, but this raises one or two questions in one's mind immediately. For example, the most distinguished uh, of all the linguistic philosophers, I suppose most people would agree, was the later Wittgenstein, and no one could say that he is clear. On the contrary, a profoundly difficult philosopher to understand. And I might link this with another point, which you may want to take separately, I don't know, but I'll make it now. I do think that the linguistic philosophers, because of their passionate commitment to clarity, profoundly, and I mean the word profoundly, underrated the value of some philosophers who aren't clear because they're not clear. And the outstanding example there, I would say, is Hegel. When we were undergraduates, Hegel was dismissed with utter contempt by most professional philosophers, Largely because he is obscure, difficult to read, difficult to follow. He was dismissed as being garbage, rubbish, not worth serious intellectual consideration. Now that was obviously a profound mistake. In other words, clarity was given importance as a value in philosophy, which I think in retrospect it can be seen not actually to have.
1: I think clarity turns out to be a more complex notion than Mm. perhaps Mm. people thought, or some people thought at the time. I think the case of Haeckel is complex, because I don't think it just was because he was difficult, it it, it was just because he was difficult, it was certainly because he was difficult in a certain way. For instance, I don't think that Kant ever underwent the degree of, certainly didn't undergo the degree of dismissal to which you refer, and I don't think anyone could say that Kant or Kant's language were of a preeminently easy kind, at the the very least. I think also one has to add that there were certain historical reasons why Hegel was ideologically suspect to an extremely high degree. I mean, it was thought that a particular... A connection with
0: totalitarianism.
1: totalitarianism, and he was thought, um, I think somewhat erroneously, to be connected with, as it were, Hitlerian deformations in the German consciousness. And errors of this kind were committed, but of a kind which are not unfamiliar. I think there was a historical context to that. But you're right in saying that the view of the history of philosophy was very selective uh, and, in a way, governed by some concept of clarity. Now, there's certainly a difference if you look at the writings of Austin and you look at the writings of Wittgenstein. Now, it's not because, when one says that, the difference is that Austin's are clear in a way that Wittgenstein's isn't. I think what one means is, doesn't one, that Austin's are in somehow more literal minded than Wittgenstein's. Yes, exactly. You see, there are very few sentences in the Philosophical Investigations uh, which you referred to which aren't perfectly straightforward sentences they don't have ambiguous grammar or obscure nouns in them what they, is difficult they, to
0: understand is why he's saying that's right
1: i mean they contain sentences like if a lion should speak we would not understand him
0: yeah.
1: no that sentence the point is the question is why is it there yeah. and i think that why it's difficult to follow is because of an ambiguity very deep ambiguity about how far it's harnessed to an argument. Mm. In Austin, or any of another, or many other linguistic philosophers we could refer to, there are, as in some other philosophers, pretty explicit arguments. There's a good deal of therefore and since and because and it will now be proved (laughs) in a certain way. In Wittgenstein there are extremely few. Mm. I mean it consists of curious sorts of conversations with himself and epigrams, and aphorisms, and reminders, and things of this kind. And this is connected with a very deeply radical view he had about philosophy, that it had got nothing to do with proof or argument at all. So radical was his view about the peculiarity of philosophical problems that he thought that, and so unlike was his approach to them, to that of solving a problem in the sciences, that he thought you didn't do it by trying to argue somebody into something. You did it by, as he says at one point, assembling reminders. of the way we normally go on, which philosophy tends to dispose us to forget.
0: It's more like trying to get people to see things in a certain way, which works of art uh, uh, are common, don't they? Plays and novels and so on. With the
1: suggestion that when we see them in this way, we will see them in a way uncorrupted by the theoretical oversimplifications of philosophy.
0: Yes. Yes.
1: Whereas, now that strain is common to all versions of linguistic philosophy. Mm. It's a very important idea, that that, that that the idea of clarity here is connected, oddly enough, with substituting complexity for obscurity. It's allowed to be complex because life is complex. Yes. And one of the great accusations against previous philosophers is that although they've been dark and difficult and solemn, what they've actually done is vastly oversimplified. They've mm. used complex... You know, they produce contrast between appearance and reality or something. But the suggestion is if you actually think about the various ways in which things can appear to be one thing or really be another and so on or what reality might be taken to be, you'll find that our whole connection of thoughts about this is much more complex yeah. than we'd originally supposed.
0: We were saying a, a few minutes ago how whatever it was, say, 20 years ago, um, in the new dawn of linguistic philosophy, uh, people were inclined to think that uh, given enough time by the use of these techniques, the fundamental problems of philosophy would be solved in about 20 years. Well, 20 years have now passed, and of course the fundamental problems of philosophy have not been solved. And although uh, linguistic philosophy had these very great uh, merits that we've talked about, the commitment to clarity and and all the other things we've just been discussing, uh, there was clearly something fundamentally mistaken in its expectations for itself or its attitude to the subject. And let's now talk about what its shortcomings
1: were. Fair to say, of course, that all bright dawns of philosophical revolutions, and we can Mm. list about five immediately, which people have said we have now found the right path Why is it philosophy has been floundering around before now, we now have the right path. They all tend to encounter their own problems of their own methods before very long and that of linguistic analysis is not alone in that. Um, I think that what the basic mistake, if we can speak of a basic mistake, its basic limitation was, um, was that it underestimated, in my view, the importance of theory. It above all underestimated the importance of theory inside philosophy. It had a rather ancillary tendency to underestimate the importance of theory in other subjects as well. I think I don't think it had a very clear idea about the importance of theory, even in the sciences.
0: Let me make make sure that I I Hmm. know what you mean when you talk about the unimportance of theory. The linguistic analysts tend to pick up with their tweezers one concept at a time and analyze it. Uh, sometimes, in, in Austin's case, almost in dissociation from everything else without any reference to an explanatory theory as background and so on. Is, is that what you're That's the to? sort of idea. I mean, but I, I think
1: that what we tend to do is to pick up um, some distinction or opposition and go very carefully into that. Mm. And uh, what the various nuances that might be attached to that, and, mm. and, and order them or take them, mm. without perhaps enough reflection on what background made this distinction or set of mm. distinctions, rather than some other set of distinctions of any interest or importance. Because you were doing
0: the subject in a piecemeal way, I and mean, indeed the word piecemeal right.
1: was one that, that, that you yourselves often used. Uh, frequently, it. that was yes. piecemeal was a term of praise. Yes, and. Um, There was rather an interesting analogy, which Austin used at one point. He said, uh, when people complained about the multiplication of distinctions, and he said, why are people so afraid of the multiplication of distinctions? Distinctions of sorts of language, or whatever it may be. He said, whatever there are, there are over 10,000 subspecies of a certain kind of beetle, or of beetles, or some, some sort of insect. And why can't we just discover that number of distinctions about language? Well, the answer, of course, is that our grounds for distinguishing species of beetles from one another are grounded in a certain theoretical understanding of what makes species different, an understanding given by the theory of evolution. Unless you've got some background theoretical understanding, Anything is as different from anything else as you like. You've got to have it rooted in the sense of what makes one distinction more important than another. You've got to have a frame of reference. A frame of reference. And that framework is a theory. I I think think that that had to be said, said, yes. And I think that that wasn't adequately acknowledged. I mean, people did say, they varied to to the degree to which they said, you can do it bit by bit or you have to do more at a time. But I think the acknowledgement that the problems were only set by, the distinctions were only given a substance by, a background of some more theoretical or systematic understanding. That point, I think, was more generally yes, overlooked. Yes. I was talking earlier about the way uh, a linguistic philosophers tended to bring the
0: toolkit to any uh, one of a variety of mm. different fields of discourse, and that, I think, uh, relates now, in our present stage of this discussion, um, to one of the important shortcomings of linguistic philosophy and practice as an approach. And that was that uh, philosophers tended to regard philosophy too much as separated from, or at least separable from, any subject matter. I remember one of the most distinguished philosophers in the country saying to me about 15 years ago, You don't have to know anything to be good at philosophy. All you have to be is clever and interested in the subject. <laughs>
1: Well, I think that he was, he was certainly more honest than some anyway, I think that a lot of people thought yeah. that, but yeah. wouldn't have had the cheek to say it. Um, um, I, think I think that, that remark sounds, and it, perhaps it's quite an interesting historical for, reflection, as you imply, mm-hmm. on how things looked, that that remark would have certainly have sounded at least a great deal less quaint when it was uttered mm-hmm. than I think it indisputably does now. Yeah. And it, this was connected with, and I think this is in a way another side of the point we were making earlier, about... The revolutionary sense of this philosophy. You see, the, 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 it, it worked in part by making one feel that the nature of philosophy had been misunderstood, that people had gone on about philosophy, just as if they were charting the philosophical realm or doing a special kind of super science. And now we had a sort of self-consciousness about philosophy, which meant you couldn't assume it was like that. And as I said already, in the case of Wittgenstein, the self-consciousness was so profoundly doubting that he had grave doubts about the existence of philosophy at all, except as a kind of, well, sometimes some of his followers said neurosis or aberration or something that happens when our conceptions of ourselves go wrong. Now, that radical feeling, revolutionary feeling about philosophy, also made people frightfully and overly self-conscious about what philosophy was and encouraged the feeling that it was frightfully different from anything else that made, in turn, made everybody think that the sciences, for instance, were not in themselves philosophical. They didn't have a philosophical part to them. There was philosophy and there were the first order subjects. Now I think now that people would once more be very conscious that there are parts of science which are themselves the philosophy of science, there's parts of linguistics which are the philosophy of linguistics, there's a good deal of psychology which is the philosophy of psychology, and here there's a no man's land which you both have to have philosophical skills and also you have to know about these sciences or the other relevant subjects and that this, this dichotomy can't be made.
0: Another way in which uh, looking at philosophy in this dissociated way made the approach defective was that it resulted in its lacking any historical sense, didn't it? I mean, there was very little sense yes. among, the, among the linguistic philosophers that the concepts that they were analysing actually have histories, they change their use they were so concerned with use, their use changes over the course of time. And they paid remarkably little attention to the intentions of the language users whose use of language they were discussing, if these were figures from the
1: past. Ah, well, I think there's two different points there. Uh, I mean, I think there's a point about all concepts having a history. I mean, that any concept mm. you care to take has got some history. And with regard to that, I think that they had, if a slightly narrow line, a perfectly... Defensible one, which was to say, let's look at it now as a functionally operating system, and it's like a, in a way it was certain like a certain kind of anthropology, as it were. I mean, it wasn't yes. anthropology, but it, it shared the idea but, of.
0: But it meant that when they considered the ideas of Locke or, Bacon, ah, or yes. any dead philosopher, they tended to argue with this dead figure as if he was a colleague right. in their common
1: room. Indeed, now that's 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 an important point because the, the I mean when you come to the history of philosophy. Uh, There, of course, you get something else. And there's no doubt at all that the approach to a lot of the philosophy of the past was uh, of a might be called a sturdily anachronistic character. The remark about saying treating it all as it was written in the philosophical magazine this month or something was actually made by somebody in praise of this method. What can, (laughs) can be said about it is a very curious fact that, of course, it's theoretically indefensible. I mean, it's, it's not easy to see. It's not difficult to see that that's quite a funny way of going about looking at these writings that come from the past. The odd fact is that, as a matter of fact, it's rather productive, and in fact rather stimulating, and in fact has had a more robust legacy than you might have expected in a way, and indeed more robust than kinds of the history of philosophy which were just rather passively guided by excessive concern for not being anachronistic.
0: Yes. We've been talking about shortcomings in linguistic philosophy, and I think each one that we've considered now has some substance to it. I want to raise one which you may not think has much Mm. substance to it, but which was the commonest criticism of all, and that is that non-philosophers tended to regard and still tend Mm. to regard linguistic philosophy as footling, and linguistic philosophers were accused of just playing with words, just being frivolous and so Mm. on. What would your comment
1: be on that? Well, the answer to that is that uh, some of it, of course, was. Mm. Um, I mean, some of it was pedantic, footling, and boring. But I think that there isn't a very sort of boring fact, which is very important here, which is that at all times, in all eras, and whoever's doing it, at least 90% on a generous estimate of philosophy that's done is not much good, and he's never going to be of any interest much to anybody later on except historians. And that's true of most subjects, but it's especially true about philosophy. Um, And there's more than one way in which... So it's not surprising that a lot of uh, linguistic philosophy wasn't much good, because a lot of philosophy of any kind isn't much good. It had a special way of being bad, which was oh. being fruotally frivolous and pedantic, yeah. instead of being pompous, empty and boring in that sort of way, as a lot of other philosophy I mean, there are really two ways in which philosophy can be bad. It can be either be pedantic or it can be bogus. What linguistic philo- Linguistic philosophy made a speciality out of being bad by being pedantic. Well, in some ways, a more honourable way of being bad than being bogus. Um, If you go beyond its deformations, the bad examples, um, it's not true. What is read as the frivolity of worrying about what these sentences actually sound like was exactly an essential and constitutive part of that kind of self-understanding about language, ringing it to hear exactly what note the sentence makes which we referred to before. What you're dead against, and
0: I know this from previous discussions with you, is the idea which is so popular, because it's self-indulgent, oh, don't worry about what I actually say, it's what I mean.
1: Perhaps. That's right. That was what linguistic philosophy was frightfully good at stopping people saying, and what is much more important, stopping them feeling. Mm. That the idea that somehow uh, I have my meaning here My little sentence will try and convey it to you. If it doesn't convey it to you, that's partly through some failure of imagination on your part. We have a responsibility to make our words express what I mean. In the end, we don't have these meanings just inside ourselves, independent of what we're disposed to say. Our sentences are our meanings. Our meanings are not just independent of them.
0: I think you've drawn up a very good balance sheet
1: now, of, of, as it were, what was good about uh, linguistic philosophy
0: and what was not so good about linguistic philosophy. What do you think we're left with at the end? What is the legacy of it? I mean, uh, I would start answering my own question yes. by making one point, and that is that the legacy is an enormous one. It's mm. a very big one. I, I have stressed, I think, a couple of times already mm. in this discussion that the way everybody does philosophy has been influenced by linguistic philosophy. What, what other uh, things are we left with at the end of Well,
1: it? I think that the point we touched on last, this point about the, our responsibility to our meanings rests with mm. us, and I think that the idea also that philosophical problems won't necessarily have the shape which the tradition gave them. This rather radical thought that what was called a philosophical problem is, just, is, is often just a sort of bracket or a bag in which there's an area of disquiet which has to be unraveled by the kind of sensitivity which uh, philo- linguistic analysis encouraged. I think these are very positive inheritances indeed. and. I think that when you join it to the r- new concern, the regained concern with theory, which philosophy now very much manifests, you get an extraordinarily fruitful combination, if you see what I mean, from, the, from these two elements from the past. Mm-hmm. And I think it's worth saying, and I think it's quite an interesting, as it were, short-term historical fact, that now, although philosophy is now very different than what it was even 25 years ago. There's 25 years ago that we're talking about, and people now are doing things rather different than what we were doing at that point in the 50s. Um, there's been, in our tradition, in our locality, much less disowning of that way of doing philosophy than is often the case under such a under such a change. I would say that less disowning than the linguistic analysts uh, showed towards positivism, for instance, that in fact it's regarded, although the the limitations and the deformations that were... Um, we've we've touched on, are perceived, and I think properly emphasized, um, there's much less disposition to say, oh, they were just going on in a fuddy-duddy, pointless way. We now have the way of doing it. I mean, people do say, we now have the way of doing it, and Then And they right.
0: always did, and they never had, <laughs> yes.
1: But they are... Uh, the, the, the sense that a positive contribution is made to that by not just and added sensitivity to language, but the grasp of this fundamental proposition that we can't get to philosophical reality independent of these actual words we are disposed to say, and that it's a very important fact about ourselves and our pattern of our life and our philosophical needs that these are the words we are disposed to say. This consciousness, I think, remains. Something that I value enormously and which
0: linguistic philosophy has obviously had a great deal to do with is the extension of philosophical inquiry to new areas of subject matter. Mm -hmm. I mean, the notion that we have touched on already that you can apply techniques of linguistic analysis to concepts in any field has resulted in the development of the philosophy of economics, of history, of population theory I mentioned earlier the most, some of the most surprising things and I think this is very valuable and very important. And
1: this is this is partly a, a, a product of that willingness to look at each thing by itself yes. that we refer yes. to. It's helped yes. now, the point we made before, by the fact that the harsh borderline between philosophy and these mm. first order scientists themselves mm. has been much much dissolved. Yeah. I think there's one further point that I think might be added there, which I think is an important one, if we could just say just mention it. I think that in the 50s particularly in the oxford variety of linguistic philosophy it tended to think that what philosophy should do philosophy should do is tidy up and make neater the untidy borders between the concepts between the ideas in these various subjects either within the subject itself or between that subject and common sense For instance, let's take the rather problematical case of psychoanalysis. A lot of concepts used in psychoanalysis, like an unconscious wish, or again, possibly an unconscious belief, cause a lot of trouble to our ordinary conceptual ideas. We're not used to this idea. And perhaps the philosophers then thought, well, we can, as it were, tidy this up. We can analyse it. We can make clear what the situation is. I think they'd underestimated the important sense in which new... Scientific discoveries make their own conceptual room, that, as it were, they just tear down pieces of language and thought that are around them in an essentially untidy and indeterminate way. Mm. And the fact that a lot of our most fruitful thought at any given moment might just necessarily be indeterminate, poorly thought out and unclear, is an important nation which you've got a bit more room for now, and I think perhaps linguistic philosophy didn't have quite enough room
0: for. Well, we're coming to the end of our discussion now. I think the point I would want to make, finally, about linguistic philosophy is that I think that used as a technique, it's of enormous and permanent value, and that it was only uh, radically defective so long as it was regarded as being in itself a total conception of philosophy. There was a period, the period that we were talking a lot about in the 40s and 50s, when many philosophers thought that the whole of philosophy consisted of doing this. Well, that I think is clearly not the case, and probably very few people now would believe that it is. Provided it's kept in its place as an ancillary technique, then I think it is of enormous and permanent value.
1: Yes, as long as one accepts that, if I can put it this way, the the bag in which the tools come, has an absolutely fundamental idea in it, which gives it its shape. This idea we've talked about, about the non-independence of language and thought. It's not just a bag of tools which can be applied to any old set of tasks, because the idea that shapes those tools themselves is one which has modified our understanding of the mind and our understanding of language. Well, Thank you very much, Bernard Williams.